Well, good morning and welcome to Twin Cities Church. For those of you I don't know, my name's Deirdre Chance and I'm part of the ministry team here at Twin Cities Church. And so a couple times each sermon series, I'm asked to um, preach a couple. So I did last week and I'm back with you this week. If you're just joining us or you've missed some sermons, we're actually going through the book of Romans backwards because we like Star Wars. No, not because we like Star Wars, because <laughs> hopefully <laughs> it gives us a better context. You know, Romans can kind of be treated like this heavy theological treatise, which it can be on many levels, but there was also a church that the book of Romans was written to. So we started in the back, um, worked backwards from 16 to 9, and some of maybe the main things about the context would be um, there were at least five house churches throughout the city of Rome, and it was made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles who couldn't get along. They couldn't even get along to sit down at a table and have a meal together because they'd argue over what type of meat to have, the cheap stuff that you could afford or know the better stuff that hasn't been sacrificed, what day of the week, other outward appearances. And so Paul writes this letter. He has a huge love for the Church of Rome, but he writes this letter to try to encourage the brothers and sisters who can't get along to get along. And he sends this letter through his coworker, fellow apostle, Phoebe, who's not only a woman, but she's a Gentile. So Paul, a believing Jew, writes this letter, sends it through Phoebe, a Gentile woman, to be read. It probably would have, well, it would have been read most likely in each of the house churches, probably would have taken about three hours to get through the whole thing. Um, and last week we looked at chapter one, now this week we'll do parts of two and the beginning of three. But before we jump into the passage, I just wanted to bring up um, a news report. I, I never sit down to watch the 10 o'clock news, but I was actually killing time on TikTok. Don't judge me on a chance. And <laughs> the 10 o'clock news popped up. And there was a great report about an anti-hate forum they had up in St. Cloud. I don't know if anybody else caught this. And so trying to overcome hate crimes in that area, they invited in a guy who used to be part of a neo-Nazi skinhead white supremacy group to find out more to try to overcome that. And so one thing he shared was that he had a lot of hate for himself, and he found that he could avoid that pain of hating himself if he would project that hate on others was just like the sermon last week and the questions we talked about last week, how oftentimes we as humans can use contempt and hate to avoid our own sense of shame. So we can, um, if we can focus on the failures of others, if I can spend my time and attention thinking about the thems that I don't identify with, then maybe I don't have quite as much time and attention and energy to think about my own stuff. Or even maybe if I put myself down before anybody else does, maybe somehow that atones for the real issue of shame that I have. And shame, we talked about real briefly last week, at its core is just exposure, the fear of exposure. At a light level, maybe shame would be the fear of embarrassment. Like I'm probably, because it's kind of darker, going to have to wear my glasses while I read and I'm not real good with them and it's probably going to slide down to the tip of my nose and I'm going to feel embarrassed and shamed, which is legitimate, no. 
Um, but it can be at a light level, this, this fear of embarrassment because something embarrassing, physical flaw, not perfection happens to us. Or at a deeper level, it could be a deep-seated terror that people are going to see who I really am, that people are going to see my personal shortcomings, are going to see my moral failures, are going to see my sins, are going to see my evil, maybe even see the abuse I've experienced that causes me to feel damaged or less than other people. And so if shame, Lord said, let there be light, thank you, <laughs> George. <laughs> now I won't have to embarrass myself with my glasses. Um, so if shame is the type of thing that can stop us in our tracks and freeze us. Contempt can be something that can energize us to move away from that conviction and sense of shame and hide from it. And it's really a form of self-righteousness. If I can focus on the others, then maybe I look better. Maybe people won't see I've actually got the same stuff. But that's not the only way we as humans can try to avoid that sense of shame. Maybe at the other end of the continuum, we might try works and good deeds. You know, that checklist that maybe you go through mentally. This is totally where I gravitate to. And I'm not talking about like good works and deeds out of a real desire to help and serve and benefit others. I'm talking about the good works and deeds that I check off mentally or literally so that I feel better about myself. And it's just another form of avoiding the real root issue. Like in our house church at the end of summer, you know, we went through hospitality during the summer, and one of the study guides had a great application to write out goals. And I even shared my trepidation to do that because I know my propensity to slide into that checklist doer to feel good about myself. But we sat down, and it was good. We wrote down some goals as a household, like do hospitality once a week, to sit down as a family and have a meal together and share prayer requests and actually pray for each other. And then a couple weeks later, my husband and I had a conversation because I just noticed I'd been more combative and argumentative with him. And so we had some time to have a conversation, like, why? You know, what's going on? And we both said, you know, I think... It's because of that list. Not that the list is the problem, but what somebody like me does is just there's always a part of my mind that's going to, did I do that? Did I do that? Do I do that? Did I do that? If I did all those things, then I'm good. Then I'm righteous. If I didn't do those things, I feel pretty condemned. And so it's just another form of self-righteousness. Like, can I feel better about myself and avoid that sense of shame? And that's really what Paul was addressing to the believing Jews in this passage who felt and operated under the pretense that their knowledge of the law, their knowledge of Torah, their heritage, their Jewish election, their people were given the oracles of God, put them in a more privileged status. They operated as if they were removed from God's judgment they weren't going to be held accountable to God or his wrath. They operated as if they're in a more privileged status with God because of their heritage. 
And so Paul starts to strip away that self-righteous attitude by asking them a series of rhetorical questions, questions that he does not expect or need an answer to. Questions like, do you think you're a guide to the blind? Do you think you're an instructor to the foolish? Do you think you're a teacher? And yet, do you not teach yourself? Do you steal? Do you commit adultery? Do you rob temples? And the last one, which may sound a little confusing, but I think gets to the point of what he's really getting at, is if a man who's uncircumcised obeys the precepts of the law, won't his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And in that ending part of chapter 2, verse 29, he's really summing it up. The true Jew is not the one who inherited the oracles. The true Jew is the Jew who is one inwardly. Not through their external checklist, but the true Jew is the Jew who gets the heart of the law. You know, many believing Jews operate it as if these works of the law, the checklist, the circumcision, gave them that more privileged status. But they missed the whole heart behind circumcision. Circumcision was meant to be a tradition, a cutting away of the flesh, that symbolized God's power, the Spirit's power, to cut away our sinful nature through faith. Righteousness has always been through faith. But the Jews thought, the believe, even the believing Jews thought, if I just follow this checklist, if I just don't work on the Sabbath, if I just follow this tradition of circumcision, if I just, the list goes on, but my heart isn't there, I'm good. I'm not going to be held accountable. I can even steal, commit adultery, rob, and I'm okay. They missed the heart of it. And it kind of reminds me, you know, like today, we have laws that are meant to help people's hearts Humankind, people, we all find our way to get around that law to get to what we still want to do. And the law doesn't do anything to get to our heart. You know, it kind of reminds me of like the new hands-free texting law. So now if I want to talk on the phone, I got to do it on the other side of the river in Wisconsin. If so. But you could still, you know, get one of those things, the suction cup things or the magnet that sits in the air vent and probably get away with doing a lot of texting and having that phone take, occupy a lot of your focus and never get caught you'd miss the whole heart of the law. That's what was going on with the Jews, the believing Jews. And so Paul is trying to ask them questions to strip away their Jewish confidence, the privilege that they feel by their heritage. I mean, which makes sense, even like Josh's serving the movement testimony, our heritage, we want to feel connected to something bigger than just us. I was telling um, my two youngest girls something that my mom did in college that was kind of cool, and they were like, oh, wow, that's really cool. I didn't know Grandma did that, and they felt a sense of connection. I mean, they didn't do anything, but with our heritage, we can feel a sense of connection, and when you don't know your heritage, it can be hard. Um, I know Lecrae, a Christian rapper, if you're familiar with him, he tweeted about how he's a black African-American rapper. He tweeted about how he was going back to find his heritage, and how his great-grandmother, three times back, he found the slave record, and he said it was painful 
but it was important to him to find his heritage. Until we feel connected to something bigger than ourselves with our heritage. And it can be hard, shocking, even kind of make your world spin type of feeling when that heritage is stripped from you. Until the Jews come back and start asking Paul a series of questions, which are fair. And these are probably questions, and Paul records them certain in chapter 3, and these are probably questions that the actual believing Jews in Rome have asked that have gotten back to Paul, because if you look at 16, there's a lot of people he's connected to in the Roman church. So they may be specific questions that have gotten back to Paul that believing Jews are asking. Or they might be, you know, as you read like in Acts throughout all the missionary travels of Paul and he's sharing the gospel and starting churches and establishing elders and coming back and visiting. There's often questions Jews are asking him. They might have been questions like that, or they might be both. But Paul records these questions. 3-1. Well, let me back up a step. So questions, try to see if you can hear the confusion over Jewish heritage and Jewish election and Jewish priority. So 3-1 says, then what advantage has the Jew? And then 3-3, well, then if the Jews are unfaithful, wouldn't that nullify the faithfulness of God? And then 3-9, well, then what benefit is it? Are we Jews any better off? These are all specific questions about privilege. And so Paul answers the questions. So the first one, is there an advantage then to being a Jew? He says yes and no. Yes, there's an advantage in the sense that the Jewish culture, the Jewish people were entrusted with the oracles of God, with the Torah, with the Old Testament. That's a great privilege. But no, in the sense that being the people who were entrusted with the oracles of God, unfaithfulness, being unfaithful to God does not nullify accountability to God. And then, which kind of goes into the other one, then they're like, well, well, then wouldn't Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And Paul's like, by no means, because you're unfaithful does not mean God stops being unfaithful. God will not stop being who he is, and that is who he is, faithful. And then the final question, are we Jews any better off then? I mean, you can hear their rootedness, their sense of they're better off, they're privileged. And Paul says, no, all men, Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. All of humankind are under the tyranny of sin. And so all these questions about um, privilege and heritage made me start thinking, what are the questions in our society that we have today about heritage and specifically privilege? And I had to come to white privilege and racism. What are the questions in our society about white privilege and racism? Why does a white rapper like Macklemore, if you know him, he sang the song Thrift Shop. I would sing it for you, but it would not help you know which song I'm talking about. Ask somebody who's under 30. Um, 
So why does a white artist like Macklemore, a hip-hop artist, win all the Grammys in rap and hip-hop, and the leading black contender, Kendrick Lamar, comes back with zero? He was named, Kendrick Lamar was nominated with seven, Macklemore four, he takes them all. When hip-hop and rap was a way, was a musical genre for people of color who felt disenfranchised in their communities to have a way and a voice to express their experiences. Why does even Macklemore say in both of his songs, White Privilege, where's my place in a music that's been taken by my race? And does it just happen in musical genres like hip-hop, where a white person gets the award, the promotion, the credit, the accolades ahead of an African-American. Why did an MIT study in 2002 show if the name on a job applicant is Emily or Brendan, there's a 50% higher chance that they'll get the job than if the name is Lakeisha or Jamal? Why did three studies in 2016 by MIT, Stanford, and University of Washington show that if a man with an African-American sounding name tries to get an Uber ride, he'll have two times likely chance that that ride will be canceled than compared to other men. Why did those same three studies show that if you're African-American, you'll have two times as long waiting time for a ride with Uber or Lyft than a white person. And how come the studies in 2018 show that even though we know it, nothing's changed? Do you ever worry if you go to Starbucks and don't buy anything that you'll be asked to leave, even though that's their policy to have public workspace you don't have to patron the business. Um, and that if you don't leave, you'll be arrested. In the book, They Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, there's a story about the main character who's an African-American high schooler. And she's flashing back to two talks she's had with her parents, the typical birds and the bees type talk and the what to do if you get arrested by the police talk. Have you ever had that conversation with your parents or with your kids? Should a white person march at a Black Lives Matter rally? Should a black student attend class rather than go to a sit-in for a Black Lives Matter rally when they know the majority of the students don't care about Michael Brown? They just want to get out of class. How come black people who write about race stuff all day long don't get the NPR airtime and other news time that Macklemore gets when he writes a song called White Privilege? Second song called White Privilege. Do you see silence on race as a luxury? you even notice if in your social circles race comes up or not, and why? If it doesn't, is that a luxury? 
Why Does Forgiveness by Botham John. If you don't know Botham John, he's the man who was killed in his apartment by a white female police officer. Why does the forgiveness that his brother showed to the murderer get weaponized? Why does the African-American judge who gives Amber Geiger, the murderer, her personal Bible get villainized? Why is there a lack of white apology in asking for forgiveness for things like lynching and discrimination and slavery? And if there is, if some people are oppressed and discriminated against by the color of their skin, doesn't that mean some people aren't discriminated against and oppressed by the color of their skin? and that's non-oppression, and that's a privilege they have that others don't? Are you willing to have conversations with others about race? What would you be willing to give up or sacrifice to have a more just society? Why is it that in classrooms and workplaces across America, the expectation for how you're going to participate in communication, the way you're going to pace, the words you're going to say, your intonation, your vocabulary, matches the way white people talk in their homes. Why is it that most white people don't realize that if you're of a different culture, when you go to participate in the classroom and in the workplace, you're going to be expected to code and not communicate the same way you do in your home. You're going to have to change it to participate with the rest of society. And could even just that communication difference contribute to the achievement gap when, if you look at the same socioeconomic levels, same type of schools, whatever majority, socioeconomic race, all those factors, why is it that whites are always ahead of Native Americans? African-Americans and Hispanics. How do you solve a problem when some people won't admit it's there? Have you ever felt like you're at a slight disadvantage to somebody else? Maybe you have um, a learning disability. Maybe you have a lower socioeconomic status, maybe you live on a farm or you have a big family and there's a lot of things you've got to do before you can walk out the door in the morning. And you notice this other person doesn't have to do that same amount of legwork as you do to get to the same achievement level. And that other person doesn't even seem to see it. And if they mention anything, it seems like something in you needs to change. These are all questions that could be asked in our society about privilege. And the Jews, the believing Jews, they impose Torah on others as the key. The key to the problems, the key to our lack of unity, the key to righteousness, the key to peace and harmony. Just everybody follow the Torah. But it was wrong, and it was enslaving because it wasn't the gospel. What do you or I impose on others that we think is the key 
that isn't the gospel? Would it be strict religious convictions? If you just follow my convictions, like George preached on 14 and 15 on the debatable matters, you just follow those convictions, same as mine, then we can come to the table together. Or would it be cultural expectations? If you act the same as my culture, then we can come to the table. Maybe it's even evangelical culture. Don't drink, don't smoke, and say certain phrases. We can come to the table together. Would it be specific political allegiance or views? Then we can come to the table together. Or maybe social expectations. I will listen to you. I will spend time to you. When your personality impresses me, appeals to me, maybe you're cool, hip, or edgy, you wear certain shoes, clothing, um, this is what goes on all the time at school, schools across America, and bullying is a real problem because of social expectations as the key to getting along. So I can stand up here and I can ask all these questions, but what are the answers? I don't know what the answers are. I know Paul's answer, in part, that aligns with this is all of us are under sin. Both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. And the non-gospel-based things that you or I try to impose on ourselves or others are never going to free us because they're not the gospel. We live in a broken, dark world. Lawrence mentioned this in his prayer, and later it says it in Romans, about all of creation longing to be free from the bondage of sin, the tyranny of sin with Jesus' second coming. And only God alone has the right to judge, and God alone will hold us accountable for our wrongs, for our sins. We're not asked to save people. Only Jesus can save. That's Jesus' job air people about what Jesus has done, that's great. And we're not asked by God to solve the problems of the human heart. Only the Spirit knows the complexities of the human heart and save and solve our human broken condition. Again, we can join with the Spirit, join Him, not try to pull Him to us. But what are we asked to do? What are we responsible for? We are asked to put off our own sin through confession. One way is through confession. Confess your wrongs. Confess your sins. Maybe the things you impose on yourself or others that aren't the gospel and just keep on enslaving. Confess those things to God. Spend some time there and confess it to others. Bring it to the light. Sometimes when I talk to others, and I do this myself, about race and injustices, it quickly jumps to, well, what can we do? Maybe don't move too fast to the, well, what can we do? Because sometimes that what can we do can just be another form 
of works, of the checklist of the white guilt to avoid the sense of shame. Maybe just for a little bit of time, just sit with your sins. Just sit with your wrongs and confess them. Have the strength from the Spirit to look at the wrong and the shame, knowing there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But we look at the shame so we can confess it. God already knows it's there. Just to agree with God that it's wrong, and he will be faithful to first forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let me pray for us.